You're listening to Homicide Worldwide. Your hosts, Sally and Keto, would like to remind our listeners the episodes deal with crimes that are graphic in nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Homicide Worldwide listeners, all of us over here at Homicide Worldwide Podcast would like to thank you for coming back each week. We see that you are spreading the word and that our body count is growing. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're kind of on Facebook. If you have an idea for an episode, send us an email to homicideworldwidepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join our moms in supporting the show, check out our Patreon. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen and please leave a five-star review. It really helps out the show. For source material, don't forget to check out the show notes. We hear about the system failing people all the time. And it's because of that system's very failure that criminals go on to commit horrible crimes different agencies, child services, juvenile facilities, and incarceration. Can any of it make a positive difference? Can people be rehabilitated from years of abuse and prior crimes? How much help can a person get before it's no longer the responsibility of the system, but of the person committing the crimes? It's an interesting thing to ponder, really, and one of those things that just doesn't seem to have a clear answer. When you consider the angles in a case like tonight's tale and how adults who play their stupid, vile relationship games go on to create a troubled childhood for their kids that is deeply rooted in chaos and bursting at the seams from abuse, it ultimately cements a vicious cycle until someone is finally strong enough to break it. In tonight's case, there were six kids. Each of them went on to perpetuate a cycle that they themselves had adapted to. Not one of them was able to break this cycle for their own families, but one of the six went on to destroy a budding life that was filled with promise and a bright future. Anthony Pardon was in his 50s when he murdered Rachel Anderson, a grown-ass man who snuffed out the life of young Rachel in a horribly violent way. In doing so, he shattered her family and her friends, and his defense tried to pin it all on his childhood. So again, we pose a question that cannot be answered. Where did the responsibility of a correctional system end And where does the responsibility of Anthony Pardon begin? Was he really failed, as they would have us believe, or was he himself a failure? Tonight, it's a bit of an open discussion, so grab a glass of wine and get comfy, and let's try to solve the world's problems. This is episode 28 of Homicide Worldwide. Dear listener, I am your co-host, Sally, 
And I am your co-host, Kita. You have made the excellent choice to join us for another dose of Homicide Worldwide. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to our show. And if you're an old-timer, thanks for coming back. You already know what you're in for. Mm -hmm. And now let's get to tonight's case. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, you might call this a pretty standard murder. If there's such a thing, there's not a huge body count. There's no infamy. You probably haven't heard of this man who committed the crime. And I think few people outside of Columbus, Ohio, shout out Columbus, have even heard of Rachel Anderson or know what happened to her. It was a horrible crime. Horrible. And this happened to her on her 24th birthday, which is right at the very sort of cusp of the best part of adulthood. And you're just Mm. kind of starting to round the corner of finding yourself and you're done with college and you're kind Mm. of settling into a career as she was. Right. We'll get to that in a second. But cool career, too. Kind of up our alley, actually. That's right. Exactly. Tonight, we're going to take a deep dive into the circumstances around Rachel's death and the man who caused it, Anthony Pardon. First, we're going to start with a little overview of this case and the main players. The murder was of Rachel Anderson, as we mentioned before. She was 24 years old, exactly at the time of her death. And murder occurred on January 28th, 2018 in Columbus, Ohio. She was an aspiring funeral director, which Mm -hmm. if you know anything about funerals and funeral directing, you know requires a couple of very important skills. You need massive empathy. You need huge compassion. You need to have an understanding for how to give people space and respect the many different forms that grieving takes. And you have to be organized as hell. It's not an easy job to do well. And she was so young. She was so young to know what she wanted to do. It's like people who know they want to be like a death doula where, you know, deliver people, you know, out of the world. That is a, a beautiful thing to be. If that's what you aspire to be, we need more people who do that. Rachel was raped and murdered in her apartment by Anthony Pardon. He was a registered sex offender with an extensive criminal history. He had only been out of prison for six months, having spent decades inside for an attempted murder many years before. The majority of his life, actually. The majority of his life was in prison. He was imprisoned when he was only 17 years old. A lot of forensic evidence was found that linked him to the crime, so it was very clear that it was him. This isn't a case of mistaken identity in any way. No, it was it was forensic and circumstantial and just... Mm-hmm. It was in every way, shape, and form. Every finger pointed to this individual that he committed the crime, and it was only him. Exactly. And he was arrested just days after the murder and charged with her murder. And later in 2020, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole. This is a very recent case. Very, very recent. Only sort of resolved last year. So that's kind of the outline of it. And now Kita's going to take you a little further. Yes. We'll be getting into a little bit more of the crime as we get through this episode, but it's important that we talk about who Anthony Pardon was as a young child because that's really where the root of his issues started. He was one of six kids and they were only about a year apart. All of his siblings were very close in age and in fact there were two siblings that overlapped by like 15 days. They were the same age for like two weeks. The other sibling had a birthday and then she turned a year older. Oh my goodness. Yeah, these kids were all in succession. And in fact, uh, their mother, 
her first child was born when she was 16. Mm-hmm. And her last child, the sixth child, was born when she was 24. So six children between the ages of 16 and 24. I would die. Twins. It's a no lot twins. of being pregnant. It's a lot of being pregnant. <laughs> I know, it's, it's a lot of responsibility to have. Totally. And so you can imagine that there was many situations in the house that were not ideal. And that really was the case. So... In the testimony that one of his siblings gives at the trial, her name is Deborah, and she described that when they lived with their mother, Loretta, that they learned how to do, quote, bad things. Mm-hmm. And so when she was pressed about what exactly that meant, they learned at a very young age how to use credit cards that were stolen. They learned how to write bad checks. They moved approximately every six months to a new mm-hmm. place. And it was a really unpredictable and a very difficult childhood for Mm -hmm. every one of these siblings. Yes. She was actually also quoted as saying that her mother ruins the lives of everyone involved with her. That is a very strong statement to say about one's mother. So I'm assuming that that comes from vast experience. There's just so much dysfunction in this family, and both Loretta and her husband at the time, Eric, who was Anthony Pardon's father, both had very different but very negative influences in his early years. Yes. So Anthony, as a young child, witnessed and was also the recipient of a lot of abuse. He witnessed Eric, his father, beating his mother over sometimes the most insignificant of things. According to her, she said if she walked the wrong direction, it was slap worthy. Or if she, God forbid, undercooked his pancakes, then he just beat her ruthlessly. The same was true with uh, young Anthony when he was a little kid. The dad, Eric, would go after the children with things like a pool cue, for example, or golf clubs. And he wasn't afraid to use it harshly. I think Anthony mentioned a time where one of the pool cues broke across his back and he had pieces of pool cue wood in his body. That gives you an idea about the... These aren't just like little smacks. These no. were wailing on his own children. Exactly. And and also Eric was an alcoholic. He apparently passed away in like 2010. So I don't know what from, but he was an alcoholic and exceedingly abusive with all of his children and his wife. We're going to get into that a little bit later on with some more detail. But when Anthony was in elementary school... He was having some really problematic behavior where he was really disruptive. He was just kind of like causing problems in the class. Like apparently there was a biting situation that was involved. And biting's not great. No, biting's really bad. He had this uh, teacher who did not really know what to do with him. And we're talking, this is like 1973-ish, 74. Mm -hmm. So she had talked with the school counselor who then kind of came up with a plan that I thought was kind of creative. They got together with a kindergarten teacher by the name of Barbara Wolf Gessiman. And she had young Anthony in her class. She actually calls him Tony because it was kind of like an affectionate, you know, like short nickname. And so she had him in her class and he would be in there for a couple of hours every day where he would just work with the kindergartners and he would teach them and as a third grader, mentor them to some degree. And 
Apparently this shift really worked for him and his behavior started to change for the better and he was interacting with other kids and he was interacting with the kindergartners and he helped out and she actually wanted to keep him as an assistant in her classroom because he was doing so great and there was a story that she was talking about how uh, it was cold outside and she you know, wanted to make sure that the kids didn't catch a cold and so he just kind of went over and he was teaching them to like make sure to have their jackets buttoned or zipped or whatever the mm-hmm. case was or there was another situation where a kid wasn't behaving properly and he just instead of having any kind of physical contact with the kid just went over and started he sat next to this kid and just kind of started to like help him out and the kid totally changed his behavior and so it was really working it was like a two-way street unfortunately this just did not last I was so sad to see Barbara Gesselman's testimony. I was so too. she's kind of amazing. She's kind of worth looking at. She looks like she stepped out of like 1973. And I mean <laughs> she that in totally absolutely does. the yes. best way. I yes. mean that with total love. She yeah. just looks like a kindergarten teacher from 1973. Yep. She wasn't <clears throat> actually approached. Uh, she contacted Anthony Pardon's attorney. Mm-hmm. She said that she wanted to tell the public that people did try to help him that efforts were made to get him the help that he needed, but he fell through the cracks of the system. But she wanted people to see that there was a moment in time where it all could have been turned around. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason that she came forward to give this testimony. She talks a little about her experience with him, as Kita said, and one of the genius things that she did, and if you're a teacher, you're like, that's not genius, that's the stuff I do every day. But it's this thing that gets difficult children to change the way that they think about themselves in the classroom. And in order to do that, what the teacher does is he or she will give the child high responsibility tasks. So when Anthony arrived in the classroom, Barbara Gesselman already knew that he was a lot of trouble. And a less experienced teacher might have said, all right, I know you've had some trouble in your classroom, but we don't put up with that sort of thing here. So here's where you can sit. And (laughs) that would have been me. Right. I think a lot of people would like respond this way. You know, I'm going to give you some things you can do. I don't want you just to stay there. And if you need anything, ask me. Okay. All right. Stay right there. You're going to be good, right? You're going to be good, right? I'm not going to deal with no bullshit, kid. No, exactly. And right away, this antagonistic relationship would be set up. (laughs) So on the day that Anthony arrived in her classroom, he kind of was there for about an hour with the counselor and he just kind of watched. And the same on the second day. And then on the third day, the counselor left him there with Barbara. And she said to him, I want you to be my kindergarten assistant. I want you to help the children. I want you to listen to them read. They need to read to somebody. And I want that person to be you. And I want you to help them with snack if they need help. And I want you to sit on the rug with them during story time and help them. There's something called the teacher expectation effect. (laughs) And the teacher expectation effect is that if you expect more of children in general, they'll give you more. If you expect less of them in general, they'll give you less. And so she basically followed that idea or that concept of when children are being irresponsible, you don't not every time but often a lot of children will respond very positively by being given responsibility mm-hmm. it shows that they're trusted that you like them that you believe in them that you know they can do better and it makes them rise to the occasion makes them and realize that they can do it too that's right and it might be the first time in their life that somebody has believed in them and mm-hmm. expected that they will do good instead of expecting that they will do bad i think this was the case with miss barbara here 
That's exactly right. Yeah. And so she really got that. By that point, she was a pretty experienced teacher already. It worked exactly the way that she expected it would. Mm -hmm. He showed great improvement in his behavior. He did help the children. They loved him. He was starting to improve in his academics. And did you hear the story about the very last day that he was in her classroom and what he did? Tell it. It's so sweet. So he said to her, I have something that I want to show you. And so on his last day with her, he pulled out a book that he wasn't able to read for a long time and he read every word to her. Wow. And at that point, it was time for him to leave her classroom. And the circumstances of that were really unfortunate. They really were. At this point, he had been living with his grandparents. And because Loretta... You know, I don't know the woman personally, but she was like a hot mess express. And Mm -hmm. according to Barbara's testimony, the time that Anthony had been with her as her assistant, Loretta had been away in prison for prostitution. Now, she said that under oath. So I am assuming that that is fact. I haven't read that anywhere, but since it was said under oath, I'm taking that 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 is correct. Either which way... Loretta was not around. And when she came back around, you know, he'd been living with his grandparents and the system wanted to reunite mother and child. Have a beautiful mm-hmm. mother-child reunion, if you will. And Not this one. It <laughs> didn't go that way. And so he was taken away from his grandparents and placed back with Loretta, which was at a different school. Mm-hmm. And he would essentially not have this opportunity to be in a classroom setting like he had with Barbara. And Mm -hmm. this just was sort of the beginning of his end right then and there. It was really on like an upward trajectory. Uh, Mm -hmm. When he was with his grandparents, it was said that he had a lot of support from them, that they were involved, that they actually cared about his education, that they were kind of aware of his issues. But as soon as he was back with Loretta, all that went out the window. Obviously, he was smart. If he Mm -hmm. was having issues reading and then he picked up on it and he had started to build his confidence, all that was positive. But he really had a lot of social issues. So when he, you know, started his new school, kids with social issues, man, that can be a really traumatic experience for them when they have to change schools all of a sudden. And all of that support that was once helping him Mm. out of this, like, you know, really fucked up time that he was having. He was starting to see some improvement for himself. That's all gone now. And now he's back with Loretta. And Loretta didn't care if her kids went to school. <laughs> she was she really didn't seem to pay any like whatever t- much attention kind of to it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she really was. And there's free-range parenting, and then there's what Loretta did. Which is not parenting at all. You know, the, the teacher, Barbara Gesselman, she was so disheartened by this. Yeah. She said in her testimony, this is a quote from her, she said... He could have lived with his mother. We could have gotten transportation through the school system so that he could stay with us at school. He could have seen his grandparents. It didn't happen. And I felt so badly that I didn't push harder, that I didn't do enough to help him stay in that program. And then she actually called Children's Services to to explain all this and give the whole background. And you know what they said to her? Yeah. They saw this. Yeah. Yeah. You do your job, we'll do ours. That was it. That was all she wrote for that. And she was baffled by this. She's like, 
we should be working together for this child. This isn't about territory or your job or you're stepping on my toes. This is about what's best for this child. That was the attitude of this department at the time. They had this belief that the child would be best with the mother or, you know, one of their direct parents, no matter what the situation, <laughs> which didn't seem to be true. And despite these, you know, educated professionals who were trying to explain this, Children's Services was having none of it. As he was actually leaving the school for the very last time, the counselor and Barbara were watching him walk away. And the counselor said, the handwriting is on the wall. Mm -hmm. And Barbara said, I'm afraid you're right. Yes, that is exactly what happened. And mm. now he's back in the abusive situation with his parents. And it was kind of confusing to me because despite... Loretta's incarceration, according to uh, Barbara Gessiman, uh, mm -hmm. she was back with her husband, Eric. Mm -hmm. And all the while, now she's hooking up with this guy named Albert Bohannon. And mm -hmm. he was kind of like her pseudo boyfriend, though she described him as a friend who was married who would stay with her sometimes. She would not she admit would, to anything nope. other than friendship. She would not. Mm -mm, she would not. But I mean, a friend who is married who would stay with me sometimes. That's your boyfriend, girl. That's your boyfriend. That's what they're <laughs> that's, called. That is exactly what that is. And so she was with him while Anthony was in like the third to the fifth grade. Now, something that's kind of important that happened during this time Loretta had gotten away from Eric, not for the first time, not for the last time. This was like a revolving, I'm going to leave you on back. I'm going to leave you on back. And this time, though, she was up in Delaware. Apparently, Eric didn't know where Loretta was. And she had been up there. There was like an apartment that Albert had arranged for her. And Eric was so angry that he couldn't find her. And Loretta's mom actually told him where she was. Now, I don't, I don't know if she was aware of the type of abuse that was going on in the house or not. But mm -hmm. one way or another, Eric tracked her ass down all the way up in Delaware. And he found her and he got her out of that house and he put her in the car and he drove for a certain amount of time. And he pulled her out of the car. He popped that trunk. He got the tire iron out. And he beat the holy fuck out of Loretta. Yeah. To the point where she was in the hospital for five days from this yeah. beat. Like, she's lucky she didn't die. A tire iron? He's, at this point, remember, though, he's a very experienced beater. And <sighs> he knows how to beat somebody without killing them. Yeah, but a tire iron. I know. That it's, could easily get away from a person. I, that could easily get away from a person. I don't understand how a person can go through as much. I mean, no. you can give shit to Loretta all you like, but she got a lot of shit served to her. Well, and nobody gets, um, nobody deserves a fucking tire iron beating from their husband. No. And, and she got beaten almost pretty much <laughs> all the daily. Time. I mean, mm -hmm. he was drunk daily. He yes. beat her. He beat her and the children. He beat them together. He beat them separately. He beat her first and then the children. He beat the children first and then her. He liked he, to have the he, variety for his beatings. Yeah, just really spice things up a bit. A real prince. He is a real <clears throat> piece of shit. I hope that. Is, is he dead? He's dead in 2010. Yeah. Let's do a Ouija board situation so I can be like, <laughs> No, what, what? We've gone into that before. You know I can't do a Ouija board. No, we can't do that. We might bring something back from the other side. <laughs> exactly. Farting poltergeist or something. <laughs> that Can't would be just that. my luck. 
So Loretta had actually been in jail several different times, and her next stint was an arrest for fraud. She had cashed checks that didn't belong to her, and she had used stolen credit cards, and she was just kind of like, she wasn't like mean. It didn't sound like she was mean. It just sounded like she was real shady with stuff like that. Just a lot of bad decisions. A lot of poor choices, just identity theft. I mean, not that that's, you know, she wasn't a mean person. She was just a fucking shady bitch. Mm -hmm. And so Albert, during this time, though, kind of provided a little bit of stability for the kids. He managed to sort of, even though all of this had happened with, like, the tire iron and everything, Mm -hmm. he kind of, like, stayed around in the kids' lives for a while and was sort of, like, a little bit of a safe haven for the brothers and the two sisters. And... While Loretta was incarcerated, uh, Deborah and Cheryl, his two older sisters, were with Loretta's mother, and the boys were with another member of the family. And Mm -hmm. she thought Anthony was there. But as it turns out, he was in a place called Franklin Village. It's a place for kids who are, quote, unruly. It's basically like imagine Annie, but with less singing and happiness. That sounds awful. Hannigan's orphanage for wayward children. It's for wayward children. And so according to his sister in her testimony, his first time in a group home was when he was approximately 10 or 11. Oh, that's so young. It's so young. At this point, there's a little bit of a gap. I'm not exactly sure. It was kind of... It was hard to find what exactly happened from like 10 or 11 to say the age of 14. I did hear that he was prescribed Ritalin at one point from the second to the fourth grade. He was. And he got taken off it by his mother. By his mother. It made him like a zombie. Didn't somebody else's mother take them off of their medication, Hmm, Richard Trenton Chase? Yeah, I think Richard Trenton Chase something. Fucking Beatrice. Bless me. I know. Idiot idiot mothers. By the way, absolutely fabulous quote from Loretta. Oh, Someone asked her during her trial if she had ever been diagnosed with a mental disorder, and this was her (sighs) quote. I've been diagnosed as bipolar and schizophrenia, and they said I'm going to kill myself, but I'm not going to kill myself because I'm going to live to be 105. (laughs) Even though I'm on heart medication, blood thinner, (laughs) blood pressure medication, anxiety medication, medication. acid reflux medication, kidney medication, I take sleeping pills, and there are two others, but I can't remember what they are. Great, the Loretta. Yeah, you'll definitely hold make you it. together. Yeah, you'll definitely make it. It's like the pills are the only thing holding her together right now. And if she wasn't for that, she would just fall into pieces. Yes. Oh, dear. Well, this kind of brings us to Anthony Pardon in his teen years. And this is where he really starts to come undone. And he really starts to show who he is. And in my opinion, what he's about to become later in life. So, and can we just note for the record that the age at which the shit starts to hit the fan is 14. 14. And that comes up again, that age. Oh, my God. The number of times that we have had this conversation about all these dude serial killers that they get to about 14. And it's like sex and violence starts to really meld together. Mm-hmm. If you are of that bent around 14 is where it really coalesces and I think it was where if you've had some sort of weird yearnings and strange feelings 14 is where it sort of becomes clear and it goes from fantasy to action yeah and there was no talk throughout anything that I found that he had ever been sexually abused 
It was no, not a peep. Certainly physical, but not any kind of sexual abuse. So, mm-hmm. what is about to happen? I don't know exactly how he learned this, but in March of 1979, when he was 14, he was temporarily committed to the Ohio Youth Commission for raping an eight-year-old girl. That's all I'm going to say about that. And in 1979, in July, he was made a ward of the court. In December of 1979, he was found guilty of menacing and permanently committed to the Youth Commission and placed in a foster home. There's a lot coming up that's even yeah worse. In February, just a couple of months later, so this was December of 79 is when he was committed to the commission. And in February of 1980, uh, he was 15 and he was convicted of raping a nine-month-old boy who was the son of his foster parents. I mean, how the fuck, Anthony? Even imagine. And when this happened, he was babysitting uh, while his foster mother had gone out for groceries. I'm not sure if she didn't know his past, maybe. I don't know how much information foster parents get, especially Mm -hmm. during this time. Maybe she had no idea that that was something that had happened before with that eight-year-old girl. Or maybe she thought that those two things wouldn't go together. That, like, I I mean, I don't want to get too much into the mindset of somebody who does these things, but attacking a girl, a grown girl, is something, but nobody would attack an infant in that way. Like, maybe that was their reasoning. It's like, well, the baby's safe. I mean, it's not like it's a grown girl. Perhaps. You never know what the thinking was or what kind of information they had. Uh, But his reasoning for this was that he had had a fight with a girlfriend. So he raped a baby, which doesn't work at all. These two things do not go together. That doesn't, that's not a viable excuse, Anthony. You need to get it together. After that happened, there was a psychiatric report that stated that he needed treatment and should be watched closely. And he was actually convicted. You think? Right? He was convicted of the crime as a juvenile. And in November of 1981, when he was 16, he kidnapped, raped, and attempted to drown the mother of a girlfriend. And this mother was around 39 years old. And he had gone to the house, knocked on the door, said, hey, I need to use your phone. This is obviously before cell phones, so Mm -hmm. that's what you did. You knocked on a door, and can I use your phone? And most people were like, yeah, sure. At this point, he apparently pulls out a knife, like a big butcher knife, and he rapes this woman, steals $100 from her purse, which is a pretty sizable amount back then. $100 today will buy you, like, some milk and some chips, but, you know, Maybe like a macchiato. (laughs) If you're lucky. And so he steals his money from her purse, and this is the part that we need to pay attention to, I think. He bound her feet and her hands together and gagged her before putting her in the trunk of her car. He untied her feet when he got to where he was going, and he threw her in the Alum Creek off of uh, Sunbury Road. She was partially clothed at the time. Now, the thing that's really interesting about this, and not to get too far ahead, is I think there's a significant pattern between this crime that he committed against his girlfriend's mother to the crime that he ended up committing against Rachel Anderson. Thank God this woman survived this attack. But it wasn't because Anthony Pardon didn't try. Now, when he realized that she was kind of able to keep herself afloat, he actually, he fucking, God, this guy, he goes into the water and he holds her down under the water in an attempt to drown her. 
What and the remember, fuck? this is a 16 year old kid. Right. This isn't like a 45 year old big dude. This is kind of a weedy 16 year old kid. The story, you couldn't sell it to Hollywood. No, you can't. And somebody intervened. There was like a good Samaritan that had mm-hmm. intervened. Anthony Pardon realized this, and so he splits before he is seen. But of course, she knows him, right? So he ends up getting arrested, but not before he takes that $100 and he goes and he buys himself some tennis shoes and a jogging suit. I bet it's Juicy Couture. I kind of imagine this jogging suit is sort of like a maybe a mauve or maroon tearaway style. You know, with the snaps, you could just like rip it off real easily. Stripper style. Exactly. That's kind of how I imagine this. Either which way, that was what he did with that $100. And the fact that there was absolutely no remorse whatsoever and no like, oh my God, what have I done? I I tried to kill my girlfriend's mother, but no, I'm going to go out and fucking buy a tracksuit and some tennies. Like, come on. So pardon for this particular offense is tried as an adult and he is convicted at the age of 17 of aggravated robbery, rape, and attempted murder. And he was sentenced to five to 25 years in prison. Pretty big range. That's a huge range. He was actually kind of shipped around. He went to the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Mm -hmm. but then ends up getting transferred to the Lebanon Correctional Institution, and then later goes to somewhere in Southern Ohio Correctional Facility, which is in Lucasville. Lucasville. Now, Lucasville was a real change of pace for him. It escalated. Um, It really did. Like, despite how crappy his life has been so far, despite all of the shitty things that have happened to him, like beatings, uh, like crappy situations at school, not really being literate. You know, he tripped out of school before he really learned how to read and write. Despite all this, he calls his time at Lucasville the worst part of my whole life. Very, very clear on that. He talks that just everything changed. So when he entered, I mean, this guy's done horrific things. Don't get me wrong. There's going to be a lot of butts in this episode. And it's this gray area that we kind of have to play in here of how much are people responsible for what they do. But we're going to get back into that later. But so he's in an adult prison at 17 years old. When he enters prison, he's five foot seven. He weighs 130 pounds. He is a weed of a child. Yeah, he's He's little. He's little, right? Um, He's living among these like super max hardened criminals. And he sees beatings. He sees stabbings. And he sees rapes. And he himself is beaten, stabbed, and twice during his prison time, he is also raped. He describes these events sort of around them, not directly at them. I can see it's very an awful thing to remember, but he describes them in his uh, court statement. And it's clear that he doesn't, he hasn't really shared this information about being raped with his mother or his sisters. It's a very shameful thing. Yeah, he feels a lot of shame around that. And not to get too much into it, but I I did take a little dive into uh, the incidence of prison rape and the effect that it has on people who go through it and then leave the prison system. And the likelihood of people who have been subject to rape in prison uh, reoffending is very high. The chance of them becoming extremely angry and lashing out and doing violent things in their society is very high. And for people in relationships the incidence of them inflicting 
the same kind of treatment on their intimate partners is also very high, particularly in heterosexual relationships where there's a feeling of needing to sort of like assert your masculinity uh -huh. and prove that you're a real man and all uh -huh. this, this kind of narrative around male rape. It's not something that I had really put a lot of thought into, but Never reading thought about it. Yeah, but going into it more deeply, I can see how it creates this this real sort of deep-seated rage at society. Uh, a lot of people who have been raped in prison report this feeling of just like generalized rage that they were put in this situation where they're supposed to be kind of fulfilling their debt to society, but at the same time, this is beyond cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah. And it's not something that is a part of your sentence, right? Right. Yeah. They don't they yeah. don't send you twenty-five years plus two prison rapes. That's exactly right. Or like one per day or a beating in the showers. Right. You know, but all this happens and in this really barbaric system that is extremely violent. It kind of uh, made a few things clearer to me that I hadn't really understood about the impact of how people come out of prison so, so traumatized. When you read about what the system does, and I'm not just talking about sexual violence, but also physical violence, the fear of violence, threatened violence. A lot of the people who go into prisons are not violent people. And it is very quickly a system that you need to establish that you can protect yourself. And yeah. if you cannot protect yourself, then you'll be preyed upon. Right. And this is the situation where this weedy 17-year-old kid found himself. And he had also grown up in a violent household where his father, as we said, and he was very, he was never made to feel safe. Now, I'm not sympathizing, to be clear, I am not sympathizing with Anthony Pardon on any level, but mm -mm. merely just kind of trying to connect the dots between his experiences from childhood all the way up through young adulthood. And at 17, you're not really an adult, although he had made an adult choice with what he did with the attempted murder and, and the rape of his girlfriend's mother. Um, he certainly wasn't an adult chronologically when he went into prison mm -hmm. at the age of 17, because he also ended up, he was a horrible prisoner. He was not well behaved. He didn't sign up for any of the classes. Like he didn't put himself out there he had gotten himself into trouble he had gotten into fights like there was mm -hmm. he didn't have like a stellar model prisoner if you will behavior you know he mm -hmm. was definitely like on the on the watch list people knew that he wasn't good news and so he ended up serving just about 24 years on that one wow which was a i mean okay so you go in at 17 you serve 24 years you're fucking 41 when you get out and so after his 24 years, he was finally released from prison in November of 2006. And in 1999, he was declared a sexual predator. That's right. He was in prison at that time. They kind of like adjusted his title. Yes, exactly. So mm -hmm. he, when he got out, he was definitely, yeah, he, he had all the odds stacked again. I mean, he did it to himself, but I mean, yeah. he definitely didn't have a shot at assimilating back into society when he's got this rap sheet that's, you know, as long as his arm. And then he's also got the title of sexual predator on there. I mean, and we're a lot not, goes along with that title. Yeah, you we're have not to talking, register. Yeah, exactly. Like you're not talking about like, oh, whoops, I got caught peeing in an alley and somebody didn't like that. So now I have, a, you know, I'm a, a sexual offender on Megan's Law. I mean, this was a, a way different experience. And so mm -hmm. When you have a felony, it makes it extremely hard to get a job. And when you have a felony like this and you have to disclose what it is because you can't mark no on that 
box. You have to go into it. You have to say if you've been convicted. And he says that he's been convicted for this horrible crime. Like he can't can't get a job. So in Mm -hmm. 2006 or 2007, it's kind of unclear. He ends up moving to Georgia and he goes and applies for like a maintenance job. But he does so under a false name. And so Big no, no. that's also not also not smiled upon. And so in 2007, he ends up getting charged in Georgia with forgery and then also failure to register as a sex offender. From that, he is convicted again and ends up spending another nine years in prison with fucking 20 years of probation when he gets out. And... He's required to wear a GPS monitor and pay for all the expenses. Just so many good decisions across the board. Yeah, he's, you know, at this point, nine years later, what that puts him at, like, approximately 50 years old. Mm -hmm. So he returns to Ohio in June of 2017. He's released from prison and he goes back to Ohio and ends up being monitored by the Adult Parole Authority. He's required to check in. Every 90 days, apparently he had done that, but the Ohio Parole Authority did not give him the monitor as the judge had requested. And Mm. so it was something to do with like an expense issue. So whatever the reason behind, I have no idea how much all this costs, but apparently because of these issues, he did not get that monitor. And later that same year in August, he ended up getting caught with a prostitute in his car. And he claimed he was giving her a ride, but... A true man of the people. He's like, I've come back to Ohio to be everybody's taxi. And so the following year, January 27th of 2018, (laughs) he gets popped for driving without a license. Like, Anthony, pal, what are you doing? Can you just make a solid decision, guy? The answer to that question is no. 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 But this is my favorite part. He wasn't arrested, though, um, for driving without a license. If it was me driving without a license, I mean, they would have had the spike strips out. I would have been like the SWAT team would have been there. There would have been like at least two to seven helicopters. I don't understand why these things don't happen to other people. I don't know. Like when it's like, oh, you know, he was caught. Oh, he was released without charges. I'm like, that would never happen to me. No, especially considering his rap sheet. Like, wouldn't you think? But my favorite part is, is that he went during that stop. He actually was found to have a pocket knife, a kitchen knife and a pellet gun. But was he arrested? No. Come on, people. He's like Teflon Don, man. It just slides right off. (laughs) He really is. Jeez. So he's free, free as a bird, walking around, can't seem to get arrested no matter how hard he tries. No matter how many knives and pellet guns he has. So this takes us up to the events that really kind of make this whole thing famous. So at this point, Anthony Pardon is free. He's been out of prison. He's kind of trying to find his way. Slowly, his path and Rachel Anderson's path are going to come closer together. So as a little background here, Rachel was celebrating her 24th birthday on sort of January 26th and 27th. This is 2018. She had some family come stay with her. And at this point, one of her friends had accidentally taken a key with him. And so she needed to go get it, but she had someone staying with her. So she decided to leave the front door of her apartment open so that this person could come and go if she wasn't there. 
So she left the house sort of in the early evening. She got some Arby's on the way home. And while she left and the door was open, that is when Anthony Pardon entered her apartment. Yes. And that was actually on the 28th, which mm-hmm. was her actual birthday. So when she came home, he was already in the apartment. He waited until she had entered and closed the door, and then he attacked her. He dragged her from the downstairs of her apartment to the upstairs of her apartment. Now, they actually call this kidnapping because he moved her from place to place. Even though he he gets convicted of kidnapping, it's not kidnapping in the sense of actually taking someone to a different destination. So it's a little confusing. If you see that, and you're confused about why she stays in the same place. That's why. Yes, because it came. It went from floor one to floor two. So he restrained her, and the way that he restrained her is called hog tying. He restrained her by tying her hands behind her to her ankles, and she was bound in that position. He raped her, and he also tortured her so that she would tell him her pin number. He then strangled her with the cord from an electric blanket. And as well as doing that, he inflicted blunt blunt trauma on her. So something large and heavy. He also uh, stabbed her in her head. At this point, she had passed away. He placed her in her bedroom closet and left her there. She was naked from the waist down. She still had the cord around her neck when she was discovered. So after he did this, and we don't really need to linger on it any more than that, that's what happened. We can kind of fill in the gaps a little bit, but that's more or less what happened. After this, he stole her car. He took her credit card. He went shopping, as you do. Did a little shopping spree in Columbus, Ohio. He also gave the card to his sister and then went shopping with her. And his sister, this was uh, Deborah who gave testimony in the trial, she only learned later by watching the news that she had been using a murdered woman's credit card. Yeah, she had no idea. In fact, it was proven that she hadn't been a part of the murder at all. And so she was really pretty shaken to learn that she had been using this credit card and actually felt a pretty big measure of guilt over it because she didn't really put it together. And, you know, why, whose debit card is this that I'm using? And then Mm -hmm. she comes to find out that it was Rachel Anderson who had been murdered. One thing I want to add, though, to what you were saying as far as with the hog tying, Mm -hmm. to go back to what he did to his girlfriend's mom, who the 39-year-old who he had attempted to drown, he gagged his victim then, and he gagged Rachel as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where I say I really drew a line between the two crimes. It was foretelling. He was just really young, and he didn't Go th- he didn't finish that. He was getting started, though. Exactly. And so when it came time for him to attack and murder Rachel, he went above and beyond. I mean, it was so much overkill. I mean, the fact that he used so many cords, it wasn't just the electric blanket. He used the cord from her hairdryer and the cord from her curling iron for the hog tying. And he took that cord from the electric blanket. And when he, after he pushed her and shoved her into that closet, he tied that to the inside of the closet so it would be harder to open. That's weird. Yeah, I don't know how it happened, but that was later on when her friend who discovered her in the closet, when he is describing his finding her, he's Mm -hmm. saying that it was he had to pull hard on the door 
to get it to open, and it kind of felt like something was pulling back mm. from the inside, which is extremely fucking creepy when you really think about that. What the sensation of that would have been like. And what was pulling back. Yeah. And how traumatic that must have been for her friend who found her. Oh, and we're almost there. So at this point, she's missing. She's in this closet, and Anthony Pardon is on his little shopping spree. The next day, January 29th, Monday, and she doesn't come to work. And yeah. she's also not answering her phone. Yeah, it was super out of character for her. Right. And think about phones. This isn't like sort of 1992. This is very recent. Yes. In recent history when everyone's attached to their phones. And, and she's a 24-year-old. She's very attached to her phone. And we love you guys, by the way. We, we do the same thing. We do. Don't I worry. just don't get it. Yeah. So uh, at this point, the supervisor at the funeral home where she worked asked one of their co-workers who was doing deliveries kind of out and about driving around the city to go to her apartment to check on her. And when she doesn't answer the door, he goes to the rental office. You know how there's like a, uh-huh. sometimes there's like a rental manager who lives on site. And so he goes there and sort of says to them, hey, I'm trying to get in contact with my friend. It's super weird. She works with me. I don't know why she hasn't answered her door. Now, there are rules about if you can go into a, a rental apartment or not. You have to give a certain amount of notice. There's like legal protections there. Yeah. So the coworker and also the rental office people weren't allowed to go into the house at that time. And so the coworker called the cops and the police came and actually they, they authorized the rental agent to open the door and enter the apartment and wander through. And they did that. And they said everything looks fine there's nobody here they didn't kind of open the doors and closets and stuff and nothing was so out of place it wasn't like a giant blood stain or anything and so or not that they could see so they didn't actually find her on the first sweep no they did find though that there was a candle that had been burning hmm. and that was something that in some of the investigators uh testimony that they had mentioned a couple of times that it was kind of like a a point of conversation they were worried that it was somehow a fire hazard which of course like an open candle flame is especially for us folk here in california mm-hmm. <laughs> but obviously this is ohio it comes into play for a minute a little bit later but that was something that they had gone back to a couple of times in some of the testimony was this open flame in the house where is rachel like this is super weird she's a reliable employee and why is this candle burning and and so they they wrap it up though right like they just kind of like well nothing to see here nothing's really out of place it's a little messy but she's a 24 year old and whatever and so Mm -hmm. we're just gonna you know she'll turn up now a few hours later the officers get called back Mm -hmm. to the apartment and this is where the candle comes into play because now they're like well there's a fire hazard in here and so they kind of start like trying to think about like how that can they go in and at this point Rachel's mother is there and she is just frantic because of, as you would be of course you would be and her mother's name is Patricia she goes by Trish and just for the record her father's name is William he goes by Bill so Trish and Bill Trish is there she's absolutely frantic where is my daughter what is happening this is completely out of character for her we just want to find out so she still wasn't turning up she hadn't called there was still a lot of concern about where she was. So she had actually jointly rented this apartment with a person who had moved out uh, several months earlier, but she continued to rent it by herself. But they were still on the lease. 
And so they could legally give permission for somebody to enter the apartment. So uh, one of her friends uh, actually got permission from this former roommate to enter and inspect the apartment. At that point, a police officer was there as well, but he was not legally allowed to enter, so he stayed outside. Mm-hmm. It was very, very, very above the board. They, yeah. The police know the rules. They know that as soon as they enter without cause, that anything that they find will be inadmissible in court. Like, mm-hmm. they understand how this works. The officer was actually uh, Frank Sclafini. He stayed outside of the apartment while the friend went inside, and that was when they discovered her body in the closet. Yeah. And the officer heard sort of like a scream come from upstairs. And when you hear a scream, you're allowed to enter the apartment, right? Because you have cause to enter. So he entered the apartment. He he ran upstairs and, you know, saw her body, checked her, saw that she had died. And then he called for an ambulance and for a coroner and, you know, investigators to come. And and that's when the whole thing kind of cracked open at that point. Yeah. The investigators arrived and they found, they sort of laid her down and, and, and inspected what they could see. She was kind of wrapped in a comforter mm-hmm. and she had a shirt around her head and she had a knotted item kind of partly around her neck and also shoved into her throat. Uh, her autopsy that was later conducted really described the brutality that she had suffered. So as I mentioned, she had had a stab wound to her head. It had gone through the the back of her neck, had gone into her brain, into the the left uh, cerebral hemisphere, and had sort of penetrated the interior part of her brain. And she had been stabbed so hard that part of her skull had actually broken off. Yes. But the cause of death was strangulation. And something can happen when you're strangled the internal pressure inside your head can actually cause your capillaries the blood vessels in your eyes to to kind of pop and so her eyes were sort of filled with blood i hope her person who viewed her body didn't have to see that i hope she had i hope right and she had been bound so she had bruises and marks on her wrists and ankles as i mentioned Mm -hmm. she had been strangled the official cause of death that was on her death certificate was the uh, the stab wound to the head and the neck but the person who did the autopsy said that he could just have easily have ruled that she died of strangulation. So it was kind of six, one, half a dozen, the other at that point. It was very clear that there were multiple sources of DNA on the body. She had been raped. And so that leaves DNA in many different forms, yes. um, sweat and other things. And so they did a lot of swabs and they found a lot of DNA and it was identifiable. And so already in this investigation, there's pretty substantial DNA evidence uh, linking him to the crime scene and to her. But that's not all the evidence that they have. Correct. It does not take them very long to catch up with Anthony Pardon. As we said, this murder occurred on Rachel's 24th birthday. They caught up with him like just a little over a week later. And a huge thing that helped them find him was the activity on Rachel's debit card. She had obviously died and so there would be no reason whatsoever for there to be one shred of debit card activity. Maybe an auto pay or something like that but Mm -hmm. certainly not like a shopping spree or Mm -mm. anything along that line and so tracking the 
first they had to kind of figure out what her banking institution was. And so mm-hmm. once they had that figured out, then it was kind of easy to see where this card was being used. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we live in a day and age where everybody's on camera all the time and it sucks until it's something like this mm-hmm. when it makes it so easy to catch up with somebody and identify them by their image, their very image using a stolen credit card that belongs to somebody who had recently been murdered. Mm-hmm. And so that was really kind of the way they worked it was they just worked it by bank records mm-hmm. and figuring out where the use of the card had been and surveillance video had shown that Anthony Pardon and his sister had been using the card and driving around in her car. Yeah, and it, he had also given her credit card to like a homeless guy yeah, who had been spending up big. Anthony it was Sleets? A guy named Anthony Sleets. Mm-hmm. And it, Too many Anthony's. It, so many Anthony's, God. And so Anthony Sleets had been caught on video as well using her card. It was kind of like Anthony Pardon would take Anthony Sleets to these different ATMs and mm-hmm. he had given him uh, the PIN number. And so he was seen making withdrawals on this debit card. And that's another way that they caught up with him was through this homeless man. And mm-hmm. the deal was, was that if Anthony Sleets did this because he was homeless, that Anthony Pardon would put him up in a hotel room for a night or two. That was the deal. And so even though Anthony Sleets didn't have anything to do with the murder, he was sort of like a bit of a patsy that way. And my thought on that is that he probably wanted somebody else's image on the camera using this card, which in a way is kind of smart, but also really stupid because he was still using the card himself and and driving her car and buying himself shit and buying Deborah shit. So Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, he just was not that smart. There was a lot of shitty decision-making. He did not have any of the skills that he needed to be a good choice maker. He did not exercise any kind of common sense. No, whatsoever, I guess is what it boils down to. If you want to take that one step further, you can think about it in terms of executive function. So basically those higher level brain processes that all kind of revolve around some form of controlling yourself. So being patient, being able to execute on your plans, forethought, all those kind of things are impacted by many different elements like traumatic brain injuries and child abuse and physical abuse in childhood and early exposure to alcohol and drug abuse. I mean, he was drinking alcohol by the time he was seven. So sad in that way. Right. And so like his brain is was already very compromised. He didn't have good examples of choice making, of people making positive choices, assessing their various options, following through in meaningful ways to enrich their lives. He didn't have any examples of that. Again, this doesn't excuse it, but it does help to explain it. So Anthony Pardon was arrested on February 9th. He was arrested and charged with first degree murder, rape, and kidnapping. He was held on a $5 million bond and his trial started almost exactly two years later in February of 2020. There was a lot of evidence given on both sides. For the most part, the prosecution's case was based on DNA and on cell phone evidence because they pinged his cell phone as you can do to see where it's been and which cell phone towers it connected to. They could pretty much put him in Rachel's apartment at the time of the murder. So between that and the very compelling DNA evidence, 
prosecution really had a very strong case. With the exception of they were going for the death penalty because of the, the aggravated murder and the burglary and mm-hmm. the robbery and the murder. Like, you can't have all those things. He stole from her as well. Yeah. As well as doing all these other things, too. And so that puts it in the aggravated category, which is a capital crime. Right. And so it didn't turn out that he ended up getting the death penalty. The jury, which consisted of four men and eight women, they only deliberated for like six hours. And they found him guilty on all charges, including the aggravated burglary, aggravated robbery, the kidnapping, the rape, and the aggravated murder. Even though it was a death penalty case, it's really hard to get 12 individuals to come together on a death sentence for somebody, regardless of how heinous the crime is. That's not an easy ask. So Rachel Anderson's father actually made a victim impact statement at the the sentencing part. So sentencing, as we've mentioned before, always happens after the verdict is given so that it does not influence the verdict. He talked about how the system failed, but unlike Anthony Pardon, who talked about how he had been failed by the system, Rachel Anderson's father came at this from really a different perspective. So this is what he said, quote, over the past few years, I have watched him make demands and have temper tantrums as though he was owed something. During the trial, he complained how the system had failed him. If anyone should be complaining, it is our family. The system definitely failed Rachel. The Department of Corrections system failed to keep him on a leash and let him walk free in society. The state highway patrol system failed to protect our daughter by giving him a slap on the wrist and a free ride home the day before he brutally murdered her. And Rachel Anderson's mother tells the court, it's frustrating to know the horrors of what was done in his early life and the families that were destroyed prior to ours. So she references the fact that three people were raped by him. Three different families and three different people and lives were horribly altered. I mean, you might be like, oh, that baby was only nine months. That baby probably suffered horrible injuries from that. I don't want to go into detail, but the math doesn't work, if you know what I mean. And the the eight-year-old probably also. And that poor woman, that 39-year-old mother of his girlfriend, she was almost murdered by him after she was raped at knife point thrown to the back of a car like been bound by him and literally mirrored what happened to rachel exactly it's just i guess the question that they're asking is what does it take to protect society from someone like this like if a person rapes a baby at 15 years old are they someone who's going to be fixable and be able to contribute to society you know they succeed in raping, hogtying, kidnapping, and then try to murder a woman at 16 years old after this history, are they are they fixable? Yeah. And the fact that he got out and was able to walk around, there has to be a way that we can protect ourselves. Recidivism, it means yeah. people who are unable to stop committing crimes and people who clearly are not able to stop themselves should not be allowed to be released. And I think that's a, a very good point from her mother that it's frustrating to know the horrors of what was done in his early life and the families that were destroyed prior to ours. That really got me. Yeah, and what I thought was a really powerful part of her victim impact statement was when she said, my daughter is Rachel Nicoletta Anderson. She is not case number 19CR00769. She also 
had really expressed a lot of rage that the fact that the money that she makes from working and paying her taxes goes to support pardon in prison. That would really bite my ass as well. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. I'd be so pissed. How unfair. Um, But it's going to get worse. It's about to get a lot worse. So... Judge McIntosh sentenced Anthony Pardon to one life sentence without parole for the aggravated murder and the other life sentence without parole for rape. He was also given an additional 63 years in prison for the aggravated burglary, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery charges and repeat violent offender specifications. And all of these sentences are to be served consecutively. So he ain't ever getting out. Unless he discovers the fucking fountain of youth in his prison cell. It's highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have that kind of luck. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I want to just go back to really quickly is Dr. Bob Stinson. Dr. Bob Stinson was a forensic psychologist who interviewed Anthony Pardon for about nine hours and then gave testimony in the sentencing part of the trial. And he talked about a couple of different factors. He's also very careful to try to balance out this weird gray area between how much are people responsible for their own choices and how much are they just a product of their circumstances. So in order to try to dig deeper into this, he looked at a different part of Anthony Pardon's life. And first he looked at the childhood trauma. So there was physical abuse from the father, neglect from the mother, drug and alcohol abuse in the family, legal problems in the family, including incarceration, as we've mentioned many times, mental health problems in the family. Mother was diagnosed bipolar and schizophrenia and just a multi-system failure throughout childhood to not support him when he needed support when he was developmentally very vulnerable. As an adult, as we said, he had, as a very young adult, he had horrible experiences in prison that shaped his life including the experience of being raped and that it is a a life-changing experience and it was for him as well. There's no reason why that's different for men than it is for women. And men come with their own set of baggage around rape. And so you can make an argument that this is another factor that kind of drove Anthony Pardon forward. He also had alcohol use disorder. So as I mentioned, he started drinking at seven or eight Uh, His dad was actually a wine salesman, as well as being an alcoholic. It's very convenient if you think about it. What a perfect match. Yeah, you know what they say, don't get high on your own supply. Right, well, it wasn't his supply, it was his employer's supply. That's technically true. He was drinking daily before he was arrested. This is Anthony Pardon. Uh, He was drinking about five to six beers a day, plus an additional six to seven drinks on top of that. Damn! He used alcohol to cope, and he was very honest about that. He also had a history of being treated for ADHD, hence the Ritalin. He got knocked unconscious twice, and unconsciousness is a good sign of some kind of traumatic injury. It's the way that the brain shuts itself down so that it can heal and not have to process thought while it's trying to not die. <laughs> he was hit in the back of the head with a baseball bat in 1986, and then in 1988 in Lucasville, while he was in prison, he was stabbed in his right ear. He also had migraines and problems with memory. So it is likely that there's a TBI there. And if you've been a listener of us for a while, if you want to go back to the Richard Ramirez case, we we really dive in there a lot into traumatic brain injury and how it can really change a lot of life outcomes. It's not just like a bump on the head. It can really change things. 
So another thing that Bob Stinson did was he used some of the research from a man named Mark Cunningham. Mark Cunningham is a doctor and a researcher who has written a lot about capital defendant evaluations. So you are a, you're on death row and they're going to sentence you and decide whether you're going to go to the electric chair or not. And Dr. Mark Cunningham will come in and try to make arguments for why you should not go to the electric chair or why you should. But generally, it's why you shouldn't. He talks a lot about the sort of ideal path of human development in terms of good life outcomes. And so the first thing you need is this like healthy foundation. So there's 10 things. The first three things you need are healthy foundations. So if you think of this like structure, you've got these three things, no family history of alcohol or drug dependence. So right off the bat, you're screwed. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony, pardon. You got no shot, Mm -hmm. baby. Yep. No family history of psychological disorders. Okay, so he's zero for two right yeah, now. Yeah, strike two. No developmental abandonment or instability. Hmm, can't Three. check that box. Right? This is, And these are foundational things. Now, if you don't have those, there still might be some things that come from your environment to help bolster you as you develop and give you some stability. So they would be an intact family. Hmm. No. That can happen. Yep. So we're building this wall now. The foundation's not there. We're just going to try to build a wall to protect the individual. Intact family's not there. Acceptance and affirmation, quite the fucking opposite. Yeah, not there. Mm -hmm. Stability. No. No, not there. Structure. No. You can make the argument that when he was in prison, he had structure. It wasn't, it's still, uh, he's getting older at that point, but there's a lot of structure in prison. So that one is like borderline, but for the most part in his early years, no. Consistency. The only thing that was consistent was daily fucking beating. So you could argue there was a lot that was consistent, but obviously his situation changed so much, his living situation. That and stability are very allied. (laughs) Modeling of positive values. Loretta? So that wasn't there. And also positive peer relationships. He Mm. just had had a little bit of them. He had a a few like, you know, Mrs. Gessiman was a nice one, but she's not really a peer. So, and then all that's left after you take all that away are your own choices. Yeah. And as we have already established, that there was one thing that Anthony Pardon was really, really terrible at. It was making good choices yeah. about his life. So he's born into this cracked foundation. And this is what the argument that Dr. Bob Stinson makes in court is that he says here, what we see in Anthony's case is that he did have developmental abandonment and instability. What we see is that his foundation from early on was cracking. And not only that, but there was a strong family history of psychological problems. And in his case, there's a really strong family history of drug and alcohol problems. So he's born into a cracked foundation. You have an individual early on who experienced developmental abandonment lots of instability and dysfunction in his home and in his environment. As his brain is developing, he's experiencing that. He's being raised by a mom whose bipolar disorder is not adequately managed. He's in a household that normalizes drug and alcohol abuse. It's as if we have put him on a skid, a skid downhill towards problems. So that's kind of the trajectory of his life. And Anthony, if you look at those sort of the needs that a person has for a stable life, he's really got pretty much none of them. No. Really, at the end of the day, I think with this case, it's such a wide berth for how many different ways you can look at this. You know, I mean, the abuse from his childhood, the rapes as a young teen, and Mm -hmm. 
the time spent in prison as an, a young adult into his manhood, into like his kind of midlife, and just the fact that he was kind of this like serial offender in a lot of ways. He was a serial offender with his sexual assault. He was a serial offender while he was incarcerated. He was a serial offender once he was out. And it was just kind of like he didn't seem to give a shit about whether or not there were any programs out there that could help him. Because in his trial, if you listen to some of the testimony, it was very clear that, you know, I said it before, but it was very clear that he didn't try to better himself. The only thing that I can say that I know of from when he was serving his time in a 24-year sentence was that he became a licensed barber, and he became a licensed plumber, and he became a licensed electrician. And he's single, ladies. <laughs> he sure is. But what was really interesting is those are skills. I don't know about the barbering because I don't think you can have a felony on your record and be a, I know, for cosmetology. razors in your hand at people's For cosmetology, throats. you can't. That's for sure. You can't have a- Really? Mm-hmm. You can't have a felony. You know, in terms of those types of things, I guess you could say maybe he tried, but mm. he certainly didn't do anything with that when he was released. So, mm. I mean, could he have gotten a job as an electrician? Not really sure. I mean- could he have done plumbing? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how many people are going to let him inside yeah, their I house. don't think Mike Diamond would. Yeah. Mike Diamond I seems mean, like a pretty up and up plumbing company, so I don't think they'd be going for it, but... Sponsor us, Mike Diamond. <laughs> exactly. I have a septic tank. As featured on the podcast, Homicide <laughs> But yeah, so all that being said, I go back to fucking Loretta. You know, mm-hmm. and and just how she was just such. There wasn't much in the way of mothering. You know, all of the children kind of report this. Anthony Pardon said things like, you know, she had to do what she had to do. In that regard, you know, he has a very realistic view of her and the circumstances that kind of led her to the actions. What an expanded time, mind. He's so emotionally intelligent. That's right. One thing that we didn't mention as far as where Rachel's apartment was located, Anthony had a girlfriend. <laughs> and her apartment was a stone's throw from Rachel's apartment. And the line of sight from his girlfriend's back door to the line of sight to Rachel's back door was, it was a straight shot. You could see it. Really? In one of the many, many testimonies that I watched on YouTube, they had an exhibit where they had the little red laser pointer and they're like, well, where is Rachel's apartment? They take the little red laser pointer and they kind of circle it with that. It's up on the um, projector. And then they show where the other block of buildings is and they say, okay, well, where is Anthony Harden's girlfriend's apartment? And they circle it with the little red laser pointer. And it was, it was like a diagonal line between the two. If you look at it, I mean, it was quite literally, you could see from apartment to apartment. And at one point, his girlfriend, her daughter had lived in the apartment right next door to Rachel, but had moved out in like, I think like a year before this all happened. I mean, their paths had to have crossed. I mean, he had to have seen her and known of her and observed. You would I think mean, so. And that's the exact perfect opportunity to do it with that kind of visibility. And also too, and this is no judgment whatsoever, but during her autopsy, they found traces of THC 
So she'd been, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. She's 24 years old. Like, who didn't when they were 24? Give me a break. Exactly. The defense also really pulled this out and they tried to, like, make a big deal out of it. Like, oh, and what what was it? What kind of paraphernalia did she use? Like, she was this, like, Paraphernalia. And what does that even mean? It's like, what are you trying to paint her as like some drug addict who kind of had it coming? You know, yeah, exactly. It's, like, it's just a shitty line of, as soon as you go down that line of questioning, I think you're just going to sound like an asshole. Well, yeah. And the thing is, is he said that he had a connection, that he had been in her apartment before. He did admit that he had been in her apartment prior, but it was because they used to quote unquote get high. Anthony Pardon does not seem like the kind of guy I'd want to get high with. That would like fucking harsh my mellow so hard. Yeah, I would not. Have <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I've just heard it. I'm assuming I know what it means. With Loretta, his mother, uh, you know, she really had a skewed outlook on where she went wrong with <laughs> her son. And she firmly believes that she failed him, but she believes that she failed him because she could have been more involved with his school. That's like five percent of how you were a crappy parent loretta Loretta, you've got some things to learn she also feels that she could have gotten him tested earlier with his behavioral problems like such as the biting because it had started as young as kindergarten and other behavioral problems that started around the age of five as children are in kindergarten give or take he apparently had pulled the chair, like, as a teacher. You know how kids could do that sometimes? They'll pull the chair out from underneath another kid and they fall on the floor. He did that to his teacher. He would not have done that to Mrs. Gessman. No, he wouldn't have. Like, he respected her. Yeah, he liked her. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so she kind of thought that because, you know, as I said before, she had her first kid when she was 16 and her sixth child when she was 24 she had her hands full i mean i really at the end of the day like you have to kind of give a little credit there because she did have her hands full. i'm not credit in terms of like her being a good parent but like credit cut her some slack in terms of her hands were fucking full yeah that's a lot of babies it's a lot of kids especially all year apart my god part of the reason she didn't address this is because her other kids were kind of doing the same thing. Like there were some behavioral issues with all of her kids, specifically the boys. And so because the other kids were doing it, she was kind of like, well, I guess that's what kids do. Well, Loretta, maybe it's because their home life is a fucking mess. She was hearing things from other people that her children were delinquent and making poor choices and getting in trouble. That's not just a vague opinion. It's not just somebody's opinion. That's society reflecting back at you that you're a shitty parent. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, she was a young mom and as young moms go, you know, sometimes people have a little bit of a hard time. And and I get that. At the end of the day, like she wasn't really making the uh, adjustments that could have improved her life or her children's life. And Anthony was about the age of five or six. Like, I guess his dad, Eric, threw some pretty rough beatings on him. And a lot of it had to do with his behavior in kindergarten. So he was getting it from the school, and then he was also getting it from his dad at home. And one of the beatings was so bad, his mother, Loretta, went to go and kind of comfort him afterwards. Like, oh, God, you know, my child's hurt. And evidently, Eric would not allow it. And so she had to wait until Eric was gone to comfort her child. He just terrorized that family. He sounded like a real dick. Yeah, but like it's it's beyond that. He just like haunted everything that they did. I mean, he would ridicule them. He would beat the crap out of them. He would control them. Like it just sounds it sounds absolutely terrifying. Yes. Yeah. It was an atrocious home life. It almost seems kind of like unbelievable. Yeah. But it happened. 
And so it's just, it's amazing that, that this took place. In addition to that, you know, I mean, a couple of fun facts. Really my number one, I guess I only have one real fun fact, but it is just that at one point or another, they were all in prison and there was a period of time where each of them was incarcerated at the same time. Is that all of the siblings and mom and, and mom. dad? Um, I don't, I never heard anything about dad. That definitely was mom. At one point, mom and mom Loretta was in prison when Deborah was in prison and they were in the same correctional institute. Oh, keep it in the family, I guess. Isn't that nice? Hey, mom. How's it Hi. going? Hey, mom, you're in too? <laughs> what are you in for? Oh, my God. All at the same time. Can you imagine? Like, at that point, there's so much in the way of generational trauma and yeah. generational dysfunction there that you have to wonder how you would ever escape from that. It goes back to what I was saying in, in my intro. Like, there is just some families, it is just so ingrained, the dysfunction and the despair. They see these patterns repeated over and over and over and over again. Some of them just don't feel any hope. Lack of hope is, I mean, we saw that a lot in Snowtown and right. those sort of really dysfunctional just living situations. Yeah. And in fact, like Loretta even describes like her relationship with her children is not all, you know, peaches and cream, specifically mm -hmm. with Cheryl, as you had said, you know, she had accused Eric of molesting her. Mm hmm because he was her stepfather and I mean Loretta just flat out denies it so I mean if that happened I mean like that's just one more layer of yeah. abuse horror yeah this is a very dysfunctional family and no matter what happens and no matter all of the rationalizations and all of the different examples of adversity of Anthony Pardon's life there's still a moment where he chose to walk through that door. There's still a moment where he chose to hide until she had locked up. There's still a moment where he chose to drag her upstairs. It's hard for me to kind of get a grasp on how much was his choice, how much was his upbringing, how much was all those beatings, how much was traumatic brain injury or alcohol injury, how much was being raped in prison and then trying to take it out on the system. And am I wrong to even suggest that anything but his own agency was responsible. You know, like I feel really conflicted in even asking these questions. Humans are not generally comfortable with the gray area. When it comes to controversial topics, we are rarely reasonable. We like to stake out one side or another, hunkering down in our beliefs. The issue of criminal culpability tends to get people hot and bothered. If you believe the folks on the extremes, then you're either a bleeding heart leftist who will give murderers and rapists a free pass if they got even a light spanking in childhood, or you're a red-faced, bull-necked, bloodthirsty, pro-capital punishment rage beast. Internet comments on this topic abound with frothing arguments from both sides. Surely there's a middle ground where the truth lies. People do bear responsibility for their choices and people are more likely to make destructive choices if they've been exposed to violence, abandonment, and dangerous substances in childhood. These things can both be true. The place where free choice and predestination overlap is deeply intriguing and lies at the misty heart of how we each become who we are. To what degree are people responsible for their criminal actions if their adverse life experiences seem to have driven them inexorably towards those choices? 
The killing of Rachel Anderson was horrific. We need to see that there is a consequence, that punishment is levied. But the circumstances in Anthony Pardon's life do blur the edges of his culpability. In a capital sentencing hearing on a different case, Dr. Mark Cunningham gave testimony on this issue of moral culpability. He said, quote, Moral culpability is the idea that we do not all come to our choices and our conduct out of a level playing field, and that the things that form you or damage you as you are growing up affect how you perceive your choices, affect your value system, affect your ability to ultimately control yourself. And it's because of those differences in people's background and the differences that they bring to their conduct that the punishment might be different from one person to another who has committed the same act because their moral culpability is different. How they got there, the raw materials that they had to work with were different." End quote. Dr. Bob Stinson spent nine hours interviewing Anthony Pardon and gave extensive testimony in his sentencing hearing. He said, although Anthony has choices like other people, he is extremely disadvantaged by not having a healthy foundation and by not having a protective developmental wall. Two thirds of adults have at least one adverse child experience, some even two or three. He had nine out of 10. This moves his choices to a place where we are almost guaranteed to see negative outcomes." End quote. Like Barbara Gessaman in her kindergarten classroom, Dr. Stinson could see the writing on the wall of Anthony Pardon's life. He said, from a psychological standpoint, when you pull the curtains back and you look at what he's experienced, this model tells us we can't be shocked that this ended tragically. But that's what's going to happen if we get all of these things in one person's life. You've been listening to Homicide Worldwide.